I'm going to talk to you today about something related to the third leg of the academic stool, the often left off third leg of the academic stool, um, which is education. So how to be an effective and efficient teacher, especially in times of uh, need for, you know, it's like a high-paced environment. Um, you know, formal medical education still involves a lot of uh, lecture-based education, and it's, it's really not a great way to go. So we're going to talk about some strategies, some evidence-based educational strategies. And then um, for the last part, we're going to talk about uh, the project that I've been involved with heavily, which is the Maryland CC Project website and um, how that's going and how we think that this can improve critical care education. So my objectives today are, like I said, to review some evidence-based concepts that are embedded within formal education, and then to progress onto some cutting-edge education strategies, and last, to have a little bit of subversion. So I want, I want to bring you guys over to the dark side in terms of how I can make you better educators without doing things like what I'm doing right now, which is not the way we should be teaching at all. So I have no conflicts of interest. So does anyone know, anyone know uh, what this is or where this is? Davidge Hall. Yeah, Davidge Hall, right down the street. Um, Davidge Hall was built twice, actually, uh, before 1810. The first time it was burned down, and it was burned down by the students because the lectures were horrible. That's not true. It was burned down by Baltimoreans back when we had good, like, old-school riots where we could actually burn down government buildings um, as opposed to the community. Um, but, but they actually burned it down because they thought that, um, that the docks were digging up bodies and grave, grave snatching, body snatching. And so uh, they used to put the bodies in, in barrels of whiskey to pickle them. And uh, they would transfer them in and out of the building in, bottle, in barrels of whiskey. Um, but eventually they got to an agreement with the Baltimoreans and said, we won't dissect the people of our community, we'll do it from people outside the community, and that's how we got our cadavers. <laughs> um, but the point is, is this, this is how you were taught to learn, okay? This is how we're all taught to learn. We're taught to learn these big auditoriums where um, you sit down and there's a one-way communication of uh, what the teacher wants you to know. And it's not an interaction at all. In fact, it's just rows of people. And think about college, med school, even fellowship, we're still being taught with lectures. So why are we still using these antiquated type teaching styles? And that's a, that's a really good question, and I think one that we don't ask enough of. Um, because essentially at the beginning of the year, or the beginning of the month, you're given a syllabus. You're saying this is what you're assigned to read, and then we're going to teach you about it. Not that we're going to necessarily talk about it, but I'm going to teach you about this. So you need to read this when you go home from your shift or anything else, and read up on your patient. But that's it. That's usually where it's left off. Um, and this, this is Bloom's taxonomy. So this is a classic sort of model of education, right? And a majority of our time is spent on the bottom two sections. It's, this is what happens in the lecture hall. It's what you need to remember. It's the facts as well as what you need to understand. And then when you go home, you're expected to do these top-level things on your own. And that's really hard to do. That's really hard to do. Instead of using the experts in the room to guide you through this analytic portion or the evaluation portion, we're assigning it as home reading for this learner who really doesn't know all that much to go home and try to figure out on their own. 
And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in my mind. And I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense um, in a lot of other educators' minds who are really doing some critical thinking about how we teach uh, our undergraduate and graduate medical students and fellows today. Um, so if you take a look at the word pedagogy, or it's kind of a meta term. It's sort of thinking about teaching and sort of figuring out how we teach and teach effectively. If you break the word down into the first syllable, what do you get? You get peds, right? That's because the concept was developed out of teaching children, okay? Teaching kids in a, in a one-room schoolhouse back in the 1800s. And we still apply this sort of thinking to how we teach adults. But adults don't really learn the same way as kids do. You know, a, a kid really doesn't know anything. They're sponges. They absorb stuff. Whatever you tell them, they'll actually learn. Um, whereas adults, they will look at you like, yeah, okay, like, you can tell me all this facts. I may regurgitate it for a test, but am I actually learning anything? Um, so the concept of adult learning was probably described only about 100 years ago. Um, and the term is not androgyny, because if you get into androgyny, that's kind of that's a whole other topic. Um, but, it's, but it's andragogy. Okay? And this is the theory of adult learning, uh, which is actually quite different from pedagogy. And uh, over the past 50 years, a person named Malcolm Knowles sort of devoted his career to this, the theory of adult learning and adult practice. And he, this guy was probably the most influential educator in terms of adult learning uh, over the past 50 or 100 years. Um, and uh, dedicated a lot of his time. He worked at Harvard, Boston University, University of Chicago, and then later on went to work at a YMCA to teach adults. Um, because um, <laughs> because it, it's, it's a lot different than kids. Right? And so these are the six sort of constructs that Malcolm Knowles came up with in relation to adult learning. And a lot of the things we need to think about when we're teaching adults, fellows, residents, um, or people who have already graduated, attending physicians. Um, and so the concepts are essentially this. Number one is need to know. Adults need to think that they have to know this for a reason. It's not because you think it's important. It's because they need to think it's important. So if you go to a lecture and someone says, you know, this is important, blah, 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 and someone's like, yeah, I'm not going to use this in my daily practice, probably like some of you are thinking right now, um, that it, it's not going to stick. So you need to convince people that it's important. And not only do you need to convince them it's important, but there needs to be a foundation of belief based on their clinical experiences or mistakes that they've made for them to believe that what you're teaching them is relevant. Self-concept is the idea that um, they want to, adults want to actively participate in their education. They don't want to be passive learners. And I think for the most part, a lot of people do. I think we get lazy at times and we, we just want to be told what we need to know. But the fact is, is that true adult learning involves interaction and it needs to happen that way. Um, a readiness is sort of um, kind of like there's a stepwise approach to how you're going to be teaching adults. Uh, as well as orientation and motivation kind of falls in the same lines of orientation. The teaching needs to be problem-based as opposed to just content-based. So adults like to think more about a problem and solve problems as opposed to just a list of facts. Um, they learn better that way. And then motivation is you have to create that fire in adults. It's not inherently there all the time. 
Um, so you need to build that desire to learn. And the adults need to know that this is important to them, kind of like what I said before. So here's one model of evidence-based education. There's some research done back in the early 80s about this. Um, and it's been carried through to a lot of the pediatric, or not pediatric, uh, child-based learning. Um, but it's essentially a cycle. And it starts out with an experience. So you may have a patient in the MICU who's really, really sick. Right? And you practice with, on that patient. You try to make them better. Um, and then when you go home, you think about it. Or you're assigned a task to think about it, to reflect. Okay? And you think about how you, what you did well, what you didn't do well, how you could have been better. Um, and then you start to experiment. And then you start to think, well, maybe I could have done something different. Maybe I could have used this medication. Or we could have recommended this surgery. Or we could have done this procedure. And that would have been better. And, I, and this takes a lot of time. And it's, it's really, a lot of people don't want to do it because it takes so much time, but it's very effective. And I don't think we do it very much of that. What we do is we talk on rounds. We'll say, oh, this is what I want you to do. This is what we're going to do. This is the plan for the day. Um, but it takes more time to sit down and talk about how you're going to go out doing that and asking the learner to, give, to participate in that activity. So this is something that I don't think we do enough of. Now, outside of clinical medicine, in the teaching setting, again, I think this is kind of missed. We don't do enough of this. We have our multidisciplinary critical care series on Thursdays, which is kind of like a Grand Rounds conference, but it's a lecture. Okay? We have things like I'm doing to you today, which is a lecture. Okay? So I'm giving you a lecture about giving lectures, and it kind of doesn't make sense. Um, so this is my dad. My dad was born in 1945. He's a baby boomer. And he was taught how to teach. Or he was, he was basically taught one way, um, which was in a classroom. Okay? So baby boomers, the concept of baby boomers, generational learners, there's a difference between people who were born in the 1940s and who were born today. Baby boomers are dependent. They're process-oriented, so they like to know how to do things. They learn well with lecture-style teaching, but they're not very tech-savvy, okay? So reading a book, <laughs> they're learning. They get a, some, some adapt. <laughs> but then if you take, it, take into consideration this guy, <laughs> this is my son, and he's a budding millennial, okay? And the millennials are a little bit different. They work better in teams. They're collaborative. <coughs> They're outcome-oriented rather than process-oriented, which can cause some conflict in the educational process in terms of the teaching process. But they view technology as a necessity. Okay. So this was studied, and there was this idea of the generations gap. And what the generations gap sort of talks about that was studied is that the teachers learned in a different way than the learners learn today. And so there's a gap there and figuring out how can we meet in the middle and teach them effectively and speak the same language. It's kind of like when you, you hear your parents or whatever used to yell at you for the music you're listening to, right? Like, I don't get that rock and roll, or I don't get that hip-hop. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. Of course it doesn't make sense to you. You're from a different generation, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong. And it's the same thing with the iPads. We, I, I think if you have kids, kids are, they can't get off of these iPads or iPhones or whatever. But rather than fight, maybe we should be embracing that sort of concept and figure out how we can use it effectively to teach, because that's the language that they understand. 
Now, it's funny, I was reading through this, and the Generation Xers, which I didn't talk about, are described as independent, self-directed, skeptical, resilient, more accepting of diversity, and very self-reliant. Seemed like a glowing sort of... <laughs> it was written by Gen Xers, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, it was, it was just kind of funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so they got this published, uh, and they gave themselves some pats on the back. Um, but Osler's been saying this for years. He's been saying teaching away from the bedside is a bastard substitute. And so, what he, but that was during a time when he lived in the hospital, right? And the residents and fellows lived in the hospital, okay? They were always around. And you could teach them in that way because they didn't graduate until you figured out, uh, until you said, all right, it's time to go. <laughs> so they could have been there for 10 years. Now, AC Jimmy says that's illegal. So we can't do that anymore. Um, so we have to figure out ways of becoming a little bit more efficient and effective at our job given the time constraints that we're given to do it. Because this is, these are the things that we're seeing every day. But not every day are the fellows seeing a patient in septic shock. Maybe they are. But how about doing the ultrasound or the echo of the heart to see how it's effectively resuscitated? Maybe they're not doing that every day. Maybe they're not getting those vent complications every single day. Or maybe we'll get the GI bleeds. They're, they're usually there every day. Um, or starting someone on ECMO, right? Doesn't happen every day. So we need to find a way to be more efficient in how we're sort of presenting these topics because you're not going to see this stuff all the time. But maybe there's a way that we can show learners how to do this stuff on a daily basis. So first step in sort of this process is creating a way to create our own learning situations. And this is where the rise of simulation has sort of come in. Because we can't have access to all those interesting clinical cases every day, maybe we can build them or create them. And we don't do enough of this. We have the Mastery Center. We have the Shock Trauma uh, Simulation um, Center. But how often do we use it? Not very often. And so there's a missed opportunity there. There's a, we need to sort of actively involve each other, collaborate, and figure out ways to create these tough clinical situations that the fellows aren't being exposed to every single day. And so simulation is a great way to do that. Now, another way, another part of this solution is the concept of open access or readily available. So, Tough clinical schedules make it really hard to make it to lecture or to make it to teaching sessions. I know, I've been there. You have a sick patient in the ICU, it's nearly impossible to break away. So how can we go about making it readily available and providing a way for what we call asynchronous learning? So learning outside of the formal or finite constructs of the classroom. And um, so creating content that's readily available is super important to get people to go through this cycle of experiential learning and emotional sort of building to get to the point where if they're presented with a difficult case or a difficult patient, they're going to be able to handle it in stride and not sort of muck it up as they go along because they've never seen it before. So you want to make it so that they've seen it before, maybe not physically, but metaphysically or virtually, either in their minds or with their hands with simulation. So we need to get a little bit social about this. And this, this means that we need to involve others in the way that we're teaching or building these teaching experiences. And if you think this is just with us, you're wrong. 
a lot of the national and international organizations are doing this. You have CHEST, SCCM, New England Journal. They're all developing these learning techniques, these teaching techniques, outside of the finite walls of a classroom. And I don't know how many of us are using them, but they, they're there and they exist. Um, there's also, uh, some of you may be familiar with certain blogs or podcasts. Um, all of these are valuable resources to be able to use on your own time or when you have a free minute to sit down and sort of participate with them. And we even have some, one faculty member who is involved with Twitter. Uh, we have a few. Um, but he's a, uh, he, he talks a lot, of, a lot of articles and stuff every now and then. And um, Twitter is a great way to keep in touch with up-to-date literature. Dr. Herr talks about this all the time. How many of you have read the most recent article in New England Journal of Medicine? You have to know this stuff. But what about the other journals? Are you reading every single one? Are you reading chest every month? Are you reading critical care every month? Are you reading uh, annals of thoracic surgery every month? Maybe not. But if you develop a community of people that sort of follow the same interests as you, a lot of people will talk about the most important articles that come out that month. And that's, that's a way I've been um, sort of kept in touch with really interesting topics is if you know you have, and a lot of these journals will have Twitter feeds as well and they'll send out when their table of contents come in or they'll send out an interesting article or an important article that they think um, just came out this month. And um, it's really a way to keep up on the literature without having to search every single month um, for those articles. So let's, talk, let's bring this home and talk about what our mission is. So I looked this up on the website, and the mission here, I'll just read it for you because I think it's kind of hard to see. The mission of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care is to provide the highest quality that combines compassion, cutting-edge technology for patients with a common and unusual pulmonary-related diseases and the critically ill. Number two, perform internationally recognized clinical, translational, and basic research that will further our understanding about mechanisms of disease and lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. Number three, train the next generation of leaders in pulmonary critical care medicine. That last little guy kind of bothers me. There needs to be more. We talk about cutting edge critical care management, techniques, research. Why are we not talking about cutting edge educational techniques to actually build these leaders? Because it has to come from somewhere. And it has to come from people in this room. It's not just to train people. We have to be aggressive in how we're teaching. Um, but don't worry, you're not alone. Um, I took a little trip across town to Johns Hopkins University to see what their teaching mission was. It says exactly the same thing. So this is not a University of Maryland problem. This is a GME problem. This is our problem that's not just here, not just up the highway, it's a national problem. We need to think about how we're teaching our students because we're not doing a great job. We're doing an okay job. So um, to address this, we started chatting. How can we sort of improve the way we teach, improve the way we learn? So back in 2013, before I started in June, um, Mike approached me as well as Jim Lantry to try and come up with a way to build a website to highlight um, the multidisciplinary critical care lecture series. Now, the lecture series is, is super important. And I don't want to belittle sort of its meaning to the institution because it's probably 
the only multidisciplinary critical care conference we have here at the hospital. Um, it includes not only physicians, but nurses, NPs, um, RTs are sort of invited, lots of different people. It's not just meant for fellows. And so it's important to share, um, not just between us, but amongst others. And the idea also was sort of to address this problem about trying to find time for conference, especially when you're busy clinical schedule. Um, and so um, we started um, sort of trying to figure out how we can uh, have this readily available for people at all times. And so this was the concept, right? So we expanded that to say, all right, well, what about beyond the conference? What else can we do to sort of improve the education of fellows? And maybe it doesn't involve faculty. Maybe it involves teaching each other. So every single month, we're on a different rotation, right? You go to the <clears throat> you go to anesthesia, you go to neuro ICU, um, you're doing uh, ultrasound, you're on consults in the CCU or cardiac surgery ICU. Um, each and every one of those fellows, each and every month, has at least two or three interesting patients, right? The rest of the time, sometimes filler, uh, the usual stuff. But each and every month, there's something cool that maybe you, know, you wouldn't have seen any other month. And how can we share that with each other? and be more efficient about the patients that we're seeing. If you have 10 fellows in 10 different ICUs, each seeing three things that are rarity, and a lot of people will say, you're not really a true attending physician until probably seven years in, because that's when you'll probably have seen uh, everything at least once. Um, you know, you're not gonna get that in two years of fellowship. So maybe we can share those sort of interesting patients with each other in a interesting and multimedia-based content way that's sort of fun to play with, it takes about five minutes to read through, um, and make our education a lot more efficient. So that's where we added in sort of the educational content, which are the little five-minute posts about um, things that you know, we saw that were really, really cool. So the, the vent problems that we saw, the ECMO problems that you may encounter in the CTICU, uh, the patient who's storming in the neuro ICU, uh, or having vasospasm, how can we sort of improve the efficiency of, of, uh, of what we're teaching and what we're seeing? And so that was the concept that sort of all came together into the Maryland CC Project website. So um, before fellowship, I hadn't, I've never built a website at all. I played with my iPhone, played with my iPad. Um, and you know, I think I was, I'm somewhat technologically sort of savvy, but I don't, I, I'm not like a techie by any sense of the words. Um, so I did some research and decided on using the platform to build this website of WordPress. And what WordPress is, is essentially a sort of a frame that can give you, or that can, um, you can build a website with. And it can sort of have a general design and you can tweak it a little bit, but it's pretty easy to set up. Um, as far as the multimedia content, uh, Blueberry was what we chose for our podcasting host. So each of the lectures, we've sort of taken out the audio and built it into a podcast that you can download every month or every week. Um, and we've even sort of incorporated into iTunes, where if you go to iTunes and you look up Maryland CC Project, um, our multidisciplinary critical care lecture series will come up, and it'll get delivered to you every time we put up a lecture. So you don't even have to go find it. It will come to you. So you can listen to it into the car. You can listen to it while you're riding a bike. You can listen to it while you're exercising, whatever. Um, you can have access to the lectures at 
a time that's convenient for you. And this is the importance of asynchronous learning. Because otherwise, if you can't make it for that one-hour conference, you're going to miss it. So how effective is that? It's not effective at all. You just, it's just a missed opportunity. So this is a way that we can sort of deliver the content to the learners um, as opposed to the other way around, having the learners come to the content. Um, and Vimeo was a way that it's basically a video hosting program that or website, kind of like YouTube, um, but it's, it's a little bit nicer, um, but where we've put all of our short video clips or teaching clips, visual audio content delivered directly to the learner as if they were actually there. And we incorporated that to the website as well. So this is the back end of the site. This is how it looks if you were to log in and want to create some content. So it looks complicated, but it's not. If you play with it for about a day or two, it's really easy to create content. And I won't go through that today, but the idea is that you can basically create something with a Word document and about three clicks, and that's it. Okay? So it's really easy to do, but it's a lot more powerful than that. Because what we can do is we can see sort of the statistics behind the site. So we can actually see who and where people have watched what we've created. We can have numbers and metrics, which I'll talk about in a second, about how many people have been exposed to our teaching points. And all of this data is really powerful if you actually look into it. So we're going to start, talk about content for a second. And like I said, we started out with the lectures. And part of, it, part of the reason is um, because the lectures, I think, I can't, st I can't stand lectures. I hate them. And so the more we can take them away from our educational process, the better. And so that's why we wanted to sort of host it in a singular place. And the idea is that with those lectures, we can then use them, build upon them, to create a curriculum. And after you have your curriculum, you can then assign it to the learners to say, I want you to listen to this talk. This is your homework. And we're going to talk about it tomorrow. And we're going to get to those higher levels of Bloom taxon Bloom's taxonomy, the analyzing the, um, the creating portion, the high-level stuff in um, sort of the presence of the expert. So what we're doing is we're taking away, we're sort of teaching locally, but educating beyond, uh, sort of educating outside of the walls of the classroom. So you ha let's just say you have an, a world expert that comes to us to talk about uh, sepsis. Steve Treziak comes to talk about sepsis, right? Brings up some pretty innovative concepts during his talk. So if you were to say, okay, listen, to that talk, you're going to go to this conference, uh, conference hour and then go home, you know, everything that's sort of taught ends with that talk. But if you say, okay, we have this lecture, it's online, I want you to listen to it tonight, and then tomorrow we're going to talk about it. We're going to sit down for an hour as a group of fellows and we're going to actually talk about what he said and these three critical points. You can then create a level of knowledge that's above and beyond they would have gotten just from sitting through that lecture. And this can be done not just at University of Maryland. This can be done anywhere. But what you're doing is you're utilizing the capital of your professors, of your teachers, of your experts. You're sucking out everything that they're good for and rather than forcing them to just do a talk, all right, to spend hours and hours and hours creating a PowerPoint. That's inefficient. What you need is to pick their brain so that you can then get to a higher level of learning. Um, and so in addition to that, we sort of talked about this, but where do you actually learn? And I think you learn at the bedside, right? You learn 
in the halls from your educators. You learn with patients like this, right? You're like, oh my God, what would I do? That was you. Um, and we're like, how are we going to approach this really difficult airway, this guy who's 700 pounds, and what are we going to do to sort of do definitive management of his airway? Um, or that vent complication. Dr. Hibashi's not around, but these guy's on APRV. Oh, man, what am I going to do? Never really was exposed to this. Um, well, maybe you, you will be. Or you don't have to use APRV. Whatever. <laughs> um, this was a cool patient I had who came in with uh, hemoptysis. Uh, we toyed around whether or not we are going to play with that clot. Um, clots are there for a reason, right? You don't, you don't leave, them, you leave them alone until you have some idea what's behind it. Um, but that's something that many of us will come up against at some point. Um, we're placing a patient on ECMO. This is a patient who I had who I got the opportunity to participate in. And, um, you know, these procedures are, you know, um, only come by once every year, maybe, uh, depending on how available you are. Um, but uh, these are how we actually learn. So um, this was an interesting article. And it's part of the whole evidence-based education approach. Uh, what it was was a study where they took two different groups of people. They had assigned them in pairs. And they said, two of you are going to go mentally rehearse this, practice, this sort of this situation. And you're going to talk about how you're going to interact, how you're going to approach this patient. And then the other two of you are going to go sort of do an ATLS course uh, for 20 minutes. Um, and then we're going to test you on how you actually do. Um, and there, there are about four clinicians in the room sort of judging and sort of um, keeping track of the key points, the key interventions, and all that stuff. Who do you think did better? The people that mentally rehearsed the process, talked about how they're going to coordinate their care, who's going to do what, or the people who sat through the ATLS course for 20 minutes? It's the, the people who thought about it. It's the people who thought, well, if this doesn't happen, what am I going to do? Or if this happens, what's my plan C? So these actual um, mental rehearsal sessions or thinking about problems is a lot higher in terms of a higher level type of thinking than sitting in a classroom. And I think that's what these little mini talks or these like teaching points, these educational content pieces, force the learners to do. It's to think about what they would do in that situation and how they would approach it. And using that sort of five-minute tidbit of, you know, they go through, they see the video, or they have the clinical problem in front of them, how would they approach it? And then after that, they think about it, and they see sort of the evidence-based approach to that. They've then thought their way through a patient that is sit, would be sitting right in front of them, but are not because they can't be everywhere. Um, as opposed to sending someone to ACLS in the beginning of the year and say, all right, this is how you're going to manage cardiac arrest, good luck. Or this is how you're going to manage cardiac arrest after cardiac surgery, good luck. It's a little bit different. Um, so the website's done a lot more than just teach. Um, it's actually gotten a lot of um, sort of publicity outside of the walls of University of Maryland. And I can tell you that a number of our speakers have gotten, or and, and a number of our posters, people who have written things, have gotten invited to do stuff as a result of putting their educational content out there. Um, someone in particular, one speaker in partic uh, particular, got invited to a well-known hospital in New York, and is now working as a medical director there, and is getting making 
half a million dollars or whatever it is for a year. That was a huge step. And that was based off of the fact that they heard a lecture that we recorded and put on the website. It's pretty cool. Um, other people have gotten academic positions, so um, have been offered directorship positions out of fellowship. It's pretty cool. And that's based on some of the stuff that they've exposed themselves to by putting their educational content out there. It's making a name for themselves. So there is some academic value in this. We just don't quite know how to formally capture it yet, but we're learning. Um, and I think this will start developing into formal or sort of promotional academic content. And, and we're still sort of figuring out how, um, but one of the ways is definitely metrics. Um, and we'll talk about that shortly. But here's an award that we won. Uh, after, the, after one year of creating the website, ATS recognized us as um, the top sort of applicant for this Innovations and in Fellowship Education. So out of 18 programs that applied, Maryland won, which is pretty cool, which means there's some external validation to what we're doing, and it's not just being seen as a sort of unilateral uh, uh, mission of our own department or a couple of people, rogue idiots, <laughs> who have decided to create a website. There's actually meaning behind this, and there's people that think it's really an innovative approach. And so we talked about old school in the classrooms, but this is the new school style of education. Because like I said, you're not limited to educating just the people within the walls of this classroom. So this talk, I'm getting to talk to about 30 really, really smart people. Okay? We put this talk on our website to inspire others. And these are the places that we're reaching. Okay? We're not just reaching Baltimore. We're reaching New York City, LA, Mexico, South America, Australia, England, you name it. And we can sort of figure out where we're reaching just based on sort of some of the back-end stuff we have with Google Analytics. So your voice, which was once contained within a room, is now amplified to reach across the world. So uh, I, I took a look at the, a few of the talks that we've had over the past couple years and figured out who and what we've done. And so these are the top three core content lectures over the past year and a half. So in a year and a half, Dr. Herr's uh, pain, agitation, delirium talk um, just was viewed, not downloaded, um, almost 5,000 times. A talk that he's probably given it a few different places. Um, he logs on every night. <laughs> <laughs> But again, this was a talk that was intended for fellows, right? Or intended to a few clinicians um, as he sort of traveled around and has given this talk. Maybe he's given it to a total of physical people, maybe a total of uh, 300, 400 people. I don't really know. Um, but I can tell you he's reached an exponential number. Uh, Dr. Walsh's TED Talk uh, is very popular. Um, Dr. Shah's Vent Waveform Analysis Talk got about 2,500 views in about a year. Um, but I can tell you, I've gotten a number of people asking for more of this. So the interesting thing about that is you can determine where your deficiencies are based on the number of views that you're getting. So if people are asking for more of this, vent waveform analysis is something that's really, really popular. And I think part of that is because we don't do enough of it, uh, teaching at the bedside. Um, people are just have a 
insatiable thirst for this topic, um, and they want more of it. And so we've subsequently done a number of different small posts about it, and they're popular beyond belief. The APRV talk uh, has a lot of interest in some antibiotic soft, but these are all common topics, except for um, the TEG talk. But I think that's sort of a um, sort of a in vogue topic at the moment. But these are all sort of core concept things that maybe aren't being taught as much as we think they are, or as well as we think they are. And um, people want to know more about them. Um, as far as the educational posts, so um, these are the top five of those. Um, and again, sort of a wide range of topics. The top one was actually just kind of an editorial piece that I did, and it just was like sort of a think about it uh, kind of thing. Um, but within about three or four months, it was viewed by over 3,000 people. Um, a talk about Crash 2 and TXA was really popular. Um, ECMO troubleshooting, talk about cardiac dysfunction and head injury, and LVAD stuff, all really, really popular. So these, I can tell you, um, the things that I've written um, took probably about an hour in total to think about it, create it, put it all together. Um, and granted, there's a steep learning curve, um, but you can put it together relatively quickly. And I can tell you that the impact factor of this is a lot bigger than just teaching to someone in the room. So Google Analytics is a way that we can sort of figure out who we're reaching and, and where we're reaching. Um, and this is pretty cool. So each and every month or whenever I want, I can go on and log on and I can sort of see sort of how many people are sort of looking at what we've created or looking at our, our lectures or have downloaded our lectures. All of this stuff is telling me physical data about who we're reaching. And so that's a lot more powerful than just the qualitative, we're doing a good job. This is actual numbers that we can report and we can do research on. Um, so I think that there's definitely an opportunity here to do some academic work and research on the impact of this type of educational content. Um, and we're starting to do that and starting to look at how we can write some papers about this. We've submitted a, uh, an abstract and we're going to submit another one. Um, but this hobby, or what we've done, is we've turned teaching into an academic project, which can then go towards promotion, which at the end of the day, I think most of us are probably interested in. Um, so it's a, it's a great way to um, sort of quantify uh, our teaching. Um, and so how much does it cost? As a department, if we're starting to think about sort of how much is this going to impact my department, um, the short answer is a bare bones, end of the day, it's pretty cheap. Um, in total, if you add up the cost of what each of these services are, um, the fixed costs of this type of operation is about $400 a year. Okay? It's not bad. Now, that's the fixed cost. That's the overhead, and that's bare bones. You can certainly add more and make it more expensive if you want, and if you want sort of production value to increase, that costs more. Um, but what we've accomplished based on a minimum budget, I think, is fairly impressive. Um, now, that doesn't take into fact the variable cost, or take into fact the variable cost, which is time. Okay, creating content takes time. When you sit down and build a lecture, it takes time. I've probably spent over 60 hours just on this talk alone. Now, but you can do that, but it doesn't have to be that much time because the learning curve is steep. But you have to be a willing participant and you have to get involved 
in order for it to take less time. But it's fun, and it gets easier, and it gets more fun when you have nurses from the, uh, or nurse practitioners from the um, nurse surgery ICU say, you wrote that, I read that, and I used that to teach on. That's pretty cool. You don't even realize who, who you're reaching um, until you get out and sort of walk around. So um, lastly, sort of in the last five minutes, talk about the future of where I, where I and we see this going. Um, before we get there, I want to talk about the pitfalls, the potential pitfalls for this site. And I think that if we actually get a little introspective about um, the possibilities are endless. But I think we've learned a lot if you look at sort of the way companies sort of uh, work. It's like Apple. Simplicity is best. So trying to focus on doing what you do well first before you actually go on and do more. I think that's the hardest part is showing some self-restraint. So focusing on creating high-quality content, whether it's the lecture stuff um, or the educational stuff, I think that's probably the most important piece of all this, is creating good content first. Focus on maybe two, maybe three things tops. Um, after that, then we can move along. But I can tell you from a user end, a lot of people appreciate just simplicity. They don't want to go to a place that's complicated, convoluted, and it takes 10 minutes to navigate through. They really just want to go, click, see what they want to see, and move along. And so that's critical as we sort of move forward in making sure that we're keeping our content simple, to the point, and efficient. Because people want to sit down for five minutes, do it, read about something, and then move along. If you think about the generational gap, the learners, the the millennials, the Gen Xers, they have a few minutes that they want to waste or they want to sit down and learn something, so they want to read it in five minutes, but they don't have all day. So for the all day stuff, they can download it on a podcast and listen to it on the way home. But for the short, quick hit pearls, that stuff has to stay simple. So, um, so where do we go from here? We started Maryland CC Project. Um, what's the next step? And so the next step is Critical Care Project. So next year, I'll be moving along, uh, taking a new job um, outside of University of Maryland. Um, and there and one or two other people that are sort of moving along as well. And so the idea is that instead of just at Maryland, what if we can expand this to other institutions and become even more efficient with how we're teaching and, and focus and bring everything centrally, um, all of these teaching points to build an entire critical care curriculum? Maybe we can do that. Maybe we can sort of pool our resources to create something that's simple and centralized for other people to use for free. And then what we can do is accomplish this task of teaching locally and educating globally through this centralized site. And that's the idea. So um, the next step is we're, it's already in the process, but of building, we have the CC project. It's, there's going to be a Maryland CC project. And next year, there'll be a Penn CC project. We may have a Tulane T CC project or and a Wisconsin CC project. And the idea is really that each of these sites will be dedicated to just sort of the educational content at their own house. It'll be a way for them to teach each other um, locally. But we can then expand that and share outside the walls to then create a centralized curriculum that can touch upon all the topics that maybe you can't do at your home institution in one year, um, but you can pick and choose the things that you find that are important or deficient in your program. And so that's the idea. Um, so with that, 
um, just want to say thank you, everyone. It's been an honor to be here for the past six years. Um, and <laughs> thanks, Dr. Shanholtz. Uh, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and you know, I, I think that the participation of sort of in this website, I encourage you all to think about getting involved, teaching others. Don't just hoard on to this educational knowledge to yourself. Share it with others. But we can create something bigger than ourselves in doing this. And it does take a little bit of time and maybe a little bit of money to do that. But the cost, I guarantee you, is a lot less than what you would spend on a lot of other academic endeavors or teaching endeavors that, um, that you could invest in. So um, thank you. Any questions? Yes. John, you uh -huh. congratulated on all the work and success you've had. Thank you. So one of the things is that it, you know, it's not only the old guys who latch on to lecture. I mean, we've done a lot of teaching at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And with all the pitfalls of teaching at the bedside, it's still a more interactive process, one-on-one, -on -one, more of a discussion mm -hmm. than, um, than a sit-down didactic mm -hmm. uh, PowerPoint lecture. Yet it doesn't seem to get that respect even from the people who are teaching, right? So if we do the bedside teaching and the, the, the feedback we get on sure. the value for the tech savvy amongst the people who rate us mm -hmm. is that there needs to be didactic. They want didactic. They, they feel cheated if they haven't had a sit-down lecture that they don't attend. Yeah. Um, so I think what you're getting at is a, a problem that exists in the learner's mind. And one of the ways I've gotten around this is to um, identify what you're doing as a teaching moment. So people don't realize they're being taught throughout the day. They really don't. They think, oh, I'm just doing this gut work, blah, blah, blah. But say, you know, this is, this is what I'm going to teach about today um, is a lot more effective a way to, for the learner to understand that they're actually being taught. And that's something that was taught to me when I did a teaching fellowship a couple years ago, um, is that you have to identify to the learner you are being taught. Um, as far as the respect part, um, or sort of the appreciation part, it, it's hard. Um, people, uh, students, uh, a lot of them are snotty-nosed little brats, right? Um, they don't respect the amount of time that it takes and energy that it takes to actually go through a patient with someone. Um, and that's going to be hard to quantify in terms of evaluation when you get into the P&T part, which is the evaluations that you're getting back. Um, and I don't have an answer for that yet. But one thing that I think that is promising is the metrics part of that, to s is the data behind the teaching points that we're putting up here, is that we're measuring how many people are being reached, the impact that you're having. Um, and that might be able to be built into, even if it's just your educational portfolio, to something to present to a formalized committee. So um, otherwise, you wouldn't get any credit for that at all. That's just considered part of your job. When you do it locally, teaching is part of your job. But when you do it, beyond the walls of the institution, that's academic work. So this is a way to sort of um, capitalize on the academic work you're already doing here and expand it beyond the walls of the University of Maryland. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
know, a lot of these TV shows and stuff, after the TV show, you can still go onto the NBC website or whatever and mm -hmm. ask questions. Have you ever, I mean, you ever thought about that, asking lecturers to open up their email or open up the ability, I don't know, maybe you do it now, I just never got any questions. Um, but to have that opportunity, I mean, I think a lot of us guys give talks that people aren't happy to answer questions. It's not something we've talked about, but it's definitely, I think, anything that gives a voice to what we're doing is smart. So, yeah, you're burned out. You really don't want to Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great idea. It's, it's definitely something that we're going to put on our to-do list. Yeah, Dr. Hase. Thanks. So some of these concepts are really old. I mean, I know. visiting professors, you know, professors mm -hmm. go from town to town. And a lot of stuff is, is old. What you're talking about is the thing here is the technology. And I can tell you that the technology uh, can sometimes be um, counterproductive. And so, and, and coming up with correct interfaces for perfect content is, is a challenge. Mm -hmm. and, and a great example of that is anybody who's taken the uh, ACLS and done, done online, mm -hmm. and done the online sure. So, so you have to just because you have technology and content doesn't mean that you're going to actually be putting forward something that's better. But if you actually take the time to really match the content, the type of the type of learning with the appropriate uh, the appropriate um, technology interface, mm -hmm. I think it, it, it's really good. That's one comment. The other is, many people who use these electronic media, both formats, mm -hmm. you know, so we've tried it here on a number of occasions using something called Vibe, which is a social network type thing. And it's hard. You tend to, you tend to select for the younger members of people who you like it. Yeah. I think I think they're both great points. Um, you know, the the second point talking about who's seeing and who's not seeing your content. Um, that's a something that a lot of the even national international organizations are struggling with is their reach. Um, and there was a recent study just came out in circulation about the use of social media and whether or not it improved their viewership of their articles. And they found that there was no difference um, in terms of publicizing it through social media versus just the usual media streams. Um, and you know, I, I don't know what to make of that study. Um, it's just one, um, but it's hard to capture sort of the people that are viewing your content. Um, as far as the first point is being careful just because you have it doesn't mean you should use it um, is totally valid. And these concepts have been around for a long time. But I still think you need the people driving forward these sort of teaching uh, technologies just need to be cognizant of how they're using it. The ATLS website or ACLS website, yeah, it's terrible. Um, because it's just like clicking through and you know we get these uh, sort of things we have to do every year we just click through they're completely useless you don't learn anything from them but if you're creating content that's exciting and sort of um, 
it sort of invites the user in for a defined short period of time, and it's very, you're very efficient and careful about the teaching that you're doing, it's all about being thoughtful. It's not just a, a drone process. Like It's being thoughtful about the, um, the type of stuff that you're putting out there. That's what's critical. And I, and I agree, and I think we've been pretty thoughtful about the teaching points that we've put out there, um, and we've gotten a great response as a result of that. But no, you can't just create stuff and putting it out there because if it's terrible content, people won't pay attention and the students won't want to learn. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a critical point. There's something called the Dr. Fox effect. I don't know if any of you have ever heard about this. So um, I'll, leave, I'll leave you with this and then you can ask any other questions at the end. So back in the 1920s, there was a uh, professor named Dr. Myron Fox. And there's this group of psychologists that um, wanted to study sort of the way we present content. So Dr. Myron Fox was a very boring physics professor. Like literally, like the classroom would fall asleep when he was talking about physics. Okay. So what they did was then they hired, they they set half, half the class through this lecture of Dr. Fox, and they hired this other guy to act as Dr. Myron Fox. He was very energetic, spoke in uh, innuendos and sort of catchphrases. Was super exciting. Um, actually. 60 to 75% of what he said wasn't even true. It was just like he made it up. And what they did was they then evaluated this. They, they handed out questionnaires and said, how did you feel about this lecture? And invariably, everyone said the second Dr. Fox was a much more effective and a really a, a better teacher, even though what he said wasn't even true. right? So I think there's a, you have to meet somewhere in the middle between entertainment and content. I think you have to encourage the people that are creating content to make it fun so that people pay attention. But obviously not going to the extreme where it's just like a bunch of nonsense and you know it's not teaching anyone anything. So I think that's the goal, is really to maximize the, um, the fun that's within the educational content that could otherwise probably be pretty boring. Is that where Fox is <laughs> 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 All right, so uh, thank you guys, thank you.